Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again today. Um, this Sunday, here's what we're up to. We are continuing in our series, Stories We Tell, in which we're looking at stories from the Old Testament and trying to imagine those stories through the eyes of the storytellers. Um, and in most cases during this series, those tellers ha- were finding are pretty challenging to, to kind of pin down. And the reason for that is because we're dealing with stories that have gone through multiple systems of telling through many, many generations over a long span of time. So as we talked about in week one, the written text that we have of the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, began as an oral history among the Hebrew people, likely um, during the period of the exodus in uh, the exodus in Egypt. And then those stories, which began as an oral tradition, uh, persist as a religious tradition during the rise and fall of the Israelite kingdom. And then finally, the stories find a written form during the time of the Jewish exile in the 6th century BCE. And so during these enormous stretches of time, we're talking about close to a thousand years of time, what keeps these stories consistent and living is the influence of God upon them, who is both the central actor in the Israelite story, and also the person that these stories at their root are all trying to figure out. And all of this means that when we read the stories of the Old Testament, we have an opportunity not just to explore Israel's history, which is fascinating, but to learn from Israel's complicated experiences with God how we can better relate with God, too. That's why we go back to them. And as it turns out, these big stretches of time in the Bible can be instructed to us on this front because living with God over time is harder than most of us expected it would be when we first got into this whole thing. I imagine most of you are with me on that. And that's actually how we want to set up the sermon today with the question, how do I live with God? How do I live with God? Here's my story. If you've known me for more than a year, just tune out to this next three minutes. I grew up in rural in a rural part of South Carolina, going to a small Southern Baptist church that was at the end of my street. We walked to it. And one of the many distinctives of many Southern Baptist churches is that absolutely everything revolves around this idea of getting saved. That was the, the central fixation of my, of my first experiences with Christian faith. Southern Baptists typically believe Um, Not all, but oftentimes they believe that we are all living in the end of days. And whether it's the world's time that's short or whether it's just your time that's short, the single most important thing that needs to happen is that you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so every sermon when I was growing up was an invitation to salvation, every single one. And every service ended with an altar call, which may be something you're familiar with. Um, where folks are invited to be baptized, like right then and there. And I realized much later in life, like Baptists and the baptizing every week, like that might be connected. But I didn't think about that. I was assumed it was named after somebody. I don't know what I thought. Anyways, when I was six years old, I accepted that call at six. Um, The pastor wouldn't baptize me, though, at six. He said that was too young. So we had to wait three weeks for my seventh birthday. And then he baptized me. That's a true story. He baptized me on my seventh birthday. So I was ready to get saved. That's the point. I was ready to get saved, and and so I did. The thing I wasn't ready for, however, was whatever it is that comes after getting saved. Our church didn't talk much about whatever that might be. Um... 
the basic idea, I think, was that either we would just figure it out over time, which is an interesting strategy, or, um, or that it wouldn't really matter, right? So long as our like, ticket to heaven had gotten punched. And as I got older, um, I started to feel a pretty deep anxiety about whether I was doing any of this stuff right. I listened to sermons and like looked for answers in the sermons about how to be a Christian. I argued with my Sunday school teachers and I argued with my youth pastor after I got done arguing with my Sunday school teachers. And by the time I graduated high school, I still didn't have any good answers. So I read my Bible and I tried to pray every day. And I realize now I was mostly just kind of waiting on a thumbs up from God to let me know that I was okay. And it wasn't until after I was married that Meredith and I found a church that spoke differently to us about how to live with God. And that church talked a lot about service. That was its fixation, about imitating the life of Jesus in addition to just like putting our faith in him. And this, this challenge to kind of take the words of the Bible and live them, not just believe them, but live them, was really galvanizing for me and for Meredith um, at that point in our lives. Six-year-old me, I realize now, understood the heart part of things. And young adult me was fixated on like the head part of things. But now, um, in my early 20s, I was learning about the hands part of things. And those three things together, the heart, the head, the hands, I think all that together started to feel right to me when it comes to how to live out my faith. But I'm still here, so I got past my mid-20s. And when I was nearing 30, life started to get significantly harder for me. I had two children. Um, the church that Meredith had joined and loved had fallen apart. I couldn't find the, the job that I believed in my heart was my calling. Um, and I had to move away from home, which is something I never really thought I was going to have to do. And in short, I didn't really know what God was doing with me. And things since then haven't really gotten any easier. I'm 41 now. And living with God is still pretty hard and confusing. And there are times, a lot of times actually, when I really miss the simplicity of my childhood faith, where getting saved was like all there was to get. And I'm telling my story to you today because I want, you to, I want to invite you to think about your story too. Do you find it hard to live with God? Do you wonder sometimes, like I did, if you're doing it wrong? Do you question if there's even a right way to do it? And are you ever afraid of him as you try to figure all that out? Are you ever afraid of yourself as you try to figure all this stuff out? I'd like for us to encounter today's story with these questions at the front of our minds. How do we live with God? And now we're going to consider Jacob. That's who we're going to talk about today. Jacob is the grandson of the patriarch Abraham, with whom God made a covenant that would eventually lead not only to the formation of Israel, but also to the salvation offered in Jesus and the hope embodied by Jesus' church. And Jacob's a tough character in the Bible, and he had a tough life. His story takes up nearly half of the book of Genesis from chapter 25 to chapter 49. I think it might be among the longest stories focused on a single character in all the Bible. And today we're going to read from a few spots in the story. I'm not going to teach on 24 chapters of Genesis today. Um, but I would encourage you to look at it yourselves during the week this week. But here's kind of the rundown. 
Jacob's father was Abraham's son, Isaac. So Abraham, Abraham, no. <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And his mother is a woman named Rebekah. And when Rebekah became pregnant, the Bible says that she was carrying twins. And quote, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? Yes. So God tells Rebecca that her children aren't just going to be in conflict while she's pregnant with them, that in fact they're going to be conflict, in conflict for her whole life, which is not a big, not good advice to give that word to a pregnant mother, I'm just going to say. But then in verse 24, we read this. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand ripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. So Jacob, then, is the younger of the two, which, if you know much about you know, how historical cultures tend to work, younger, not usually the one that's going to inherit things. But from the beginning, Jacob is a striver. His name, Jacob, means one who supplants. And it's connected to the word for heel, right? Because he's grabbing the heel. The idea is that he's always going to be doing this thing that he was doing from the very moment of his birth. He's going to be coming right after his brother Esau, grabbing him from behind and trying to climb past him. And so he gets this name that means all of that. Now, of course, that birth story proves to be pretty prophetic about how Jacob's life goes. When he's a teenager, he tricks his older brother out of his birthright by exploiting his hunger and convincing betrayed away his advantages for a bowl of soup. And then, when their father is blind and dying, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, convinces him to impersonate Esau and steal away his brother's blessing as well. And so with this, right, the supplanter has finally accomplished all of his supplanting. He's, I don't know, 18, 20 years old, and he's done it. He grabbed his brother's heel, and he climbed past him. He's gotten all that he can get. But Jacob's story, like our stories, doesn't end in this moment when he gets the blessing and the birthright in God's favor. And in fact, like there's the next chapter, and the next chapter's brother finds out all the stuff that he's done. And so in chapter 27, we read this, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my, do- my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of her elder son were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob and said to him, Your brother is consoling himself by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. So Jacob has the birthright, right? He has the blessing. But he also has a significant problem. And that the person he stole all that stuff from is mad about it. Reasonable. (laughs) And so he flees to his uncle to Laban. And when he gets there, this new chapter opens up in his life. He meets a beautiful woman named Rachel, who's Laban's daughter. That's also his cousin, but we'll don't let this slide. (laughs) And he asks to marry her. Laban agrees in exchange for seven years of labor. But then Laban is the one who does the tricks, right? He tricks Jacob who ends up marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. Supplanters get supplanted. That's the moral of the story (laughs) at this stage. And then when Jacob realizes what's happened and he's been tricked, he signs on for another seven years of labor in order to marry the woman that he wants to marry in the first place. 
And then when that happens, he's tricked again, this time into working even longer so he can have functionally a dowry, like the, the share of Laban's flocks that had been promised to him. And then at this point, which is around chapter 31 in Genesis, our trickster remembers his roots, that he's the trickster, not the one getting tricked. And so he pulls this fast one on his father-in-law with some spotted goats. And it's complicated, but although his scheme works, what ends up happening is he has to run for his life again. His father-in-law finds out he's been duped, and so he's got to go. And this time, he's already run up to the north where his uncle lives, slash father-in-law, and now he's got nowhere to go but south, which is, of course, back towards the land where he came from. And sure enough, in 32, verse 6, we read this. Messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. <laughs> so it is bad news. Again, if it had just stopped when he got the blessing, his life would have been fine. But he keeps living, and that means more trouble. Winning battles for Jacob doesn't mean winning the war. Securing God's favor doesn't mean living a secure life. And so Jacob's in trouble. And at this point in the story, Jacob does something that he has never before done in all of these chapters. He prays. It says in 32, 9 through 11, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all. It's not the most devout prayer, but it seems to come from the heart. And so finally, after seven chapters, Jacob stops striving with other people, and even with himself. And he asks God for help. And when he does that, this happens. It says, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Now, this is a strange moment. You probably have reasonable questions to ask, some of which I'm not going to answer. Sorry about that. You might be wondering, who's this man, right? Where does he come from? Why can't he wrestle past daybreak? Vampire situation? Possible. <laughs> Why does he suggest that he's God, or at least that he's from God? Why is Jacob able to wrestle him to a draw? Well, the most common view is that this man is an angel of some sort, although in verse 30 he refuses to give his name. And as far as explanations for the... the, the metaphysics of all of this, I tend personally to just rest on the most basic take, which is that this is an ancient story passed down through a hundred generations, and it's possible, just possible, that its purpose isn't metaphysical explanations about like the biology of angels, right? Maybe that's not what it's here for. Instead, maybe it's here to reveal something. And I think what it reveals is this. Esau and Isaac and Laban and even this potential angel 
are the wrong folks for Jacob to strive against. They're the wrong folks for Jacob to strive against. Doing so is destructive for everybody. And it leads to fear and it leads to hardship. But instead, what Jacob can do, what we can do, is strive with God. We can strive with God. There's something profound happening here with the names. Jacob means one who supplants, right, that heel. And supplanting in Jacob's context has always meant being in competition with his family. He grabbed Esau's ankle in the beginning. He stole his brother's birthright and then his blessing. He got duped by his father-in-law, and then he duped his father-in-law in return. But this kind of behavior that he's engaging in isn't going to lead to the peace that Jacob is really looking for because, and hear me, fighting with each other never does. It never does. It is a game that takes all of our effort, and it takes all of that effort forever. I was watching a show once where a low-level drug dealer, I watch a lot of shows, don't worry about it, but to watch, you all watch shows with drug dealers. I don't want to hear it. Anyway, where this low-level drug dealer is meeting with like the head of the cartel that he works for, and he's just trying to get promoted. And the boss asks him, like, why do you want to climb? Why do you want to climb up? And the man says, because I don't want to always be looking over my shoulder. And then the boss laughs at him and says, well, then you're in the wrong business. I think this story has a similar moral. You like what just happened. Right. The story has a similar moral. People strive, and striving always damages human relationships. We're always going to be looking over our shoulder when we get into competition with other people. I mean, looking over your shoulder is what Jacob needs. But look what happens in this story, right? Jacob wrestles this man, this man, this angel. He wrestles this, this being to a draw, and he demands a blessing, which I guess makes sense. But he's still striving, right? Like, I want more. I want you to give me something for what I've done. But instead, what does the angel actually give him? He doesn't bless him at all. What he gives him is a new name. He gives him the name Israel. And do you know what Israel means? How have we been in church so long and not made a big deal about this? It's really cool. Its roots are the word Sarah, which means to contend, and El, which means God, which means put together. It means simultaneously one who contends with God and one with whom God contends. One who contends with God and one with whom God contends. The simple reading, then, is that Jacob gets this name because he wrestles with God the night before he meets his brother again. But the fuller sense of the name, right, is that he is also one with whom God has been wrestling. And that is, after all, how wrestling works, right? It's two persons struggling with each other. And of course, the ramifications of Jacob's name change are going to continue past him, right? Because it's going to become the name of this nation that God builds out of their family. So what can we make of all of this? Well, why is it such a key part of the people's memory of themselves, and why does any of it matter to us in 2023? Well, here's my take today. Life with God is hard. Life is hard in general, with God or without. But the thing that we are invited to do is to strive not with each other, but to strive with Him. 
He can take it. He can also give it back to us. But by positioning himself not way up in the clouds where the other gods are, or only in some temple or in some church, our God invites us to bring everything, all of us, to him. Our grief, our frustration, our guilt, our joy, our plans, our failures. He invites us to struggle with him. He's here and he cares. And he doesn't want us to put on a fake face when we want to talk to him. He doesn't want us to pretend to be the things that we think he wants us to be, which is like how I grew up. He wants us to struggle vulnerably, nakedly with him. And if we do that, his promise is that he will struggle back. He will wrestle with us. He will contend with us. And when we let him really see who we are, not only are we going to be met by his embrace, but through that embrace, he will change us. We are ones who struggle with God. We are ones with whom God struggles. And I'll I'll offer a third reading of Israel to put next to those two, which over the generations became critical to Israel's understanding of itself. Is that we are ones on whose behalf God struggles. In the story, Esau meets Jacob the next day, not with hostility, but with an embrace. The brother he betrayed and cheated hugs him. And Jacob asks for Esau's forgiveness, and Esau grants it. And then Jacob moves on to the land of Bethel. And once he's there, this is what we see. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he was called Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Which is all the stuff that he cheated his brother out of in the beginning. After Jacob shifts his focus from other people to God, God finally grants him the actual blessing that he had tried to steal. And so now God is saying, you will be your father's legacy. You will be the patriarch of of this great nation. Now, none of that's going to be easy. And those storytellers writing, telling the story through their their time in slavery in Egypt and through the rise and fall of their kingdom and then eventually writing it down when they're in exile, like all of that, those people know that this journey isn't going to be easy. But Jacob's attention is now focused in the right place. So what can we do with all of this stuff? Well, I think we can learn one big thing, and that is this, that our struggling nature hurts others and it hurts us when it faces out, right? But struggling like up is safer and better and healthier and changes us. God can take it. God can wrestle back. But in the end, we can trust God to do the things in us and for us that we are not able to do on our own, no matter how hard we try. And if all of that's true, then I think our challenges today are threefold, and I'm going to do them real fast. First is this, let go of the ankles, right? Let go of the ankles in your life. Stop striving against other people, whether it's siblings or coworkers or your spouse. Stop. You don't need to win if winning comes at the expense of other people. And here's the thing, winning in this world always comes at the expense of other people. 
Instead, what you can do is you can become bold in the ways that you wrestle with God. Don't fancy yourself up for him. Don't fake things for him. Go to him where you are. Write how you are. And know that whatever you're bringing to him, he can take it. And he wants you to bring that to him. And then lastly, if you're fighting with God, once you've punched yourself out, which I think kind of what often happens in our lives, allow God to hold you and to carry you. That can be tough, but I think that's actually the answer to how we live with him. We trust him to take us where he wants us to go and to become whoever it is he wants us to be. And it might not look like what we expect, but it's going to be better even if it's not going to be easy. You are ones who struggle with God. You are ones with whom God struggles. You are one on whose behalf God struggles. That's the story. I'll pray for us and we'll continue today.